Dr. Marconi. And Professor Phil. Mm, music is on Brave New Radio. Yes. Uh, happy Easter to you. And happy Eastern to you as well. And to all of our really? Western friends, happy Western to you. Yes. And that's it. Hey! Doctor, how are you feeling tonight, Dr. Esteban? Very well. Yeah? Thank you. Nice day. Got a little chilly now, but... All in all, very nice. That's spring for you. <clears throat> you know, right. sometimes it's warm and sometimes it's cool. And I had a visitor to my office today. Christine. Oi. Bay. Right, from Oi. Bay. Wealth. Management. Right. <laughs> we should have that sponsors. memorized by now. Um, that, that is very true because, as you know, um, <clears throat> Christine is the president of they wealth management. She helps many of our professionals at William Patterson <laughs> right. manage their investments and plan out for their retirement. If somebody like you, Dr. Esteban, yes. should you ever retire, and we don't think that will happen. Oh, no, not yet. I'm sorry, almost. If you're planning for your retirement, if you have questions on anything from investment, portfolio management, your insurance, retirement planning, somebody should give Christine a call. Repeat after. Oh, you, you, your phone is ringing. So Ashley Weltner, who is our student co-host, cannot 732. repeat. 732. 455. 455. 1510. 1510. You can email her, Christine at com for advisements. We leave should mention the last oi off for savings. We've got to leave every oi off for savings, okay. especially as Easter comes close to us. Um, Ashley Weltner is our engineer. She's our student co host tonight. Thank you, Ashley. Ashley Weltner. You're so tremendous, Ashley, at everything you do. We uh, want you to go to our website, musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for that newsletter. Our newsletter is growing by leaps and bounds, Dr. Wow. Stabon. This has been the best six-month period ever. Well, it's four, four months a year. Our best four-month period ever for our newsletter. By About 40. how many subscribers? We're over. We're just almost at 1,000 now. Very good. Many of that are organic, not forced people who have to be on because they go here. There's some people are choosing to be on our, our list and people are choosing to listen to us. Pressure. I find this odd. Pressure. Follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook at MusicBiz101WP. We have a podcast, which many of you will be listening to right now. iTunes, SoundCloud, the Spotify. That's where you can find that. We should give some thanks to our friend Aaron Van Dyne. Should we not, Dr. Stavon? Please. Thanks to our the folks at Aaron Van Dyne Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss. There's only one place for somebody like you to go for your band's business management. Go to VB, uh. <sighs> That's it. 
The young girl says hyphen. CPA.com when you're ready. We should also mention that Ashley is finishing her junior year, her third year here at the University of William Patterson. You'll be back for a fourth year. You're going to drop out. You know, I was thinking about dropping out, but I think I'm going to stay for a fourth year. Why the heck not, you say? <laughs> so I said, and so we do that. So that's, uh, let's see, fifth year of our show. We're, we're really kicking some Gluteus Maximus, managing your band, sixth edition. It yes. is out. You should know that. Don't do anything about it, but just know that we were just recently ranked by Billboard the Magazine as one of the top music business programs in the United States of America. And I think that also includes Kenya, where uh, between those two countries, we are one of the best. Canada, too. Canada. And that is yes. And uh, let's see. So you want to talk about our, our guest for the night, Ashley? Let us do that. Our guest for the night is Glenn Barrows. Yes. Glenn will tell me if I said his name correctly or incorrectly. For those listening, Glenn has one N, not two. Some of you, as you're writing this down at home for the board game, Glenn is spelled with one N. Glenn Barrows, are you there? I am here. Is it Barrows, Barrows, may I borrow? Barrows, you, you got it. You got it perfectly correct. The first time I had it, let us pray that I continue. Or I just won't have to say your last name again. I think that guarantees that I don't screw it up. Glenn is the COO Correct. at Concord Music Group, and he's been there since 1995. He started as the chief executive officer. Mm -hmm. Then he was uh, demoted to chief operating officer. <laughs> I don't think that's, that's a not demotion. a demotion. Oh, okay. No, so no. I guess he'll, he'll clear that up for us because yes. a lot of people are wondering what happened there. And uh, Concord itself is the world's fifth largest integrated music company. That's another way. I kept trying to think you have Warner, Sony, and I'm calling them like record companies. Only. They're not mm -hmm. record companies, but they're, what is it? An integrated music company. Correct. So that's a good way. So fifth, uh, deals in development, acquisition, management of recorded music, music publishing, theatrical performance rights, has offices in Los Angeles, New York, Nashville, London, Berlin, and Cleveland. Let's give a big rounding applause note for Glenn Barrows. Yes. 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 <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. Thank you. All right. All right. Dr. Steve Marconi is going to give you the third degree. Oh, I don't think it'll be the third. But anyway, Glenn, how are you? I am great. Great. So Concord Music, let me just throw out for our listeners a couple of names, both on the record side and the publishing side, just so I think sort of dispel or maybe continue to dispel the myth, the myth that uh, Concord is a jazz label. So let me just throw some names out, like Igor Stravinsky, Marilyn Mason. Manson? Manson, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a long day. Yeah. Marilyn Manson, uh, Greg Allman, uh, Oscar Hammerstein, um, St. Vincent, um, Wind-up records. Um, I could go on just with the variety and the, the breadth of what Concord music is today. So was this planned? I guess is my first question to you. Uh, yes, it was, it was very much planned. I mean, not all of the specifics of, of how we would grow the business, but, um, but certainly growth was always planned and diversity was planned. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it the acquisition started with Concord Records, uh, then had Fantasy 
or purchase fantasy was one of the first purchases? That's correct. And then you started as well on the publishing side. Um, and it seemed that um, a merger took place with Bicycle Music on the publishing yep. side. And there was um, an investment company that got involved in the middle of all this to help your growth. Yeah, there's a, been a long journey. If, if you'd like, I'll give you a little, little bit of the history and kind of explain the whole CEO to COO thing. <laughs> ah. Yes, that'd be great. <laughs> I Concord, the, the first company called Concord um, started in 1973, and it was known as Concord Jazz. And that's why many would think of us as a jazz label, um, because that was the history of Concord for the first 22 years of its existence. Um, I got to Concord in 1995, and at the time I was uh, 29 years old. I was working for a company called Alliance Entertainment, and Alliance had bought a bunch of one-stop distributors at the time and then was getting into um, primary independent distribution mm -hmm. and wanted to uh, vertically integrate into owning labels. And so I was turned loose as a 29-year-old to go find labels and, and to try and convince them to sell to Alliance. And the hmm. first one that, that um, I approached was Concord, who I loved. That, you know, I was very, very much a fan of the label. Um, and I met its, its founder, Carl Jefferson. I, I, I didn't know if I was buying a company or asking for his daughter's hand in marriage when he said, state your intentions. <laughs> um, but um, I, I guess I, I passed the test because successful in buying it for Alliance. And then a few months later, um, he unfortunately um, passed away. And when that happened, I kind of stepped down from the corporate ranks of Alliance and moved from New York to uh, Northern California, which is where Concord was born, um, to run the label. And from that point forward, we went through a bunch of changes. I mean, the industry went through a, a lot of changes, but we grew quite substantially. Um, and we changed it from, from Concord Jazz to Concord Records officially. Um, later on, when we bought Fantasy, which happened in 2004, um, we called it Concord Music Group. Um, we started, uh, we got well outside of um, just uh, jazz and its related genres. We went into, you know, aiming more at the adult consumer. We had a joint venture with Starbucks, which lasted for more than a decade and really only ended because of the decline of the CD, um, but that joint venture led to projects with, I mean, we had a, a phenomenal success with Ray Charles, which kind of set it all in motion where we, we won a bunch of Grammys with that, and then it led to a joint venture with, uh, which, which um, was a, uh, the inaugural release was with Paul McCartney, and so that it, it really grew, and it grew pretty substantially well beyond the jazz business. In um, 2013, um, the company was acquired by an investment uh, uh, organization that um, also was already in the music business and owned the, a publishing company called Bicycle Music. Um, and so for a while, we operated independently with sort of a parent company at the top, very cleverly called Concord Bicycle Music. Um, and then in 2017, we bought um, a very large music publishing organization called Amagam. And Amagam um, had a couple of different components. It had a pop music publishing business. It had a, one of the largest classical music, music publishers, Boozy and Hawks. 
mm-hmm. and owned Rogers and Hammerstein. So that really changed the complexion of the business. And we thought, you know, the way the industry is evolving, it made a lot more sense um, to merge it all together into one organization. Um, and so that's what we did. And in, in the beginning of 2015, you know, we, had, we put Concord and Bicycle together under the umbrella Concord Bicycle. But in 2017, we really merged it all together into one uh, integrated organization and decided to use um, the most well-known brand there, which was Concord. Mm-hmm. Concord Bicycle had its own CEO, and when we merged it all into one organization, we all kind of uh, reconciled the roles of the various people um, within the organization. And at that point, I became the COO of this newly constructed um, business. So, so the Concord that exists today isn't quite the Concord that um, you know that started all those years ago, or that I mm-hmm. ran for a couple of decades. But um, it is now a much larger merged entity, um, which which bears the same name. Hope, I, I hope that clears it up a little bit. Yeah. So on the label side, then Tom uh, Wally joined you from Warner Brothers. That is correct. Yep. So Tom, um, he joined a few years ago. We we actually did a joint venture with Tom. He has a um, he had started a label called Loma Vista Recordings. And he joined us, I think it was 2014. And, um, you know, Tom has such a great, rich history and on the record side of the business and so much success. So he oversees the, um, the label side of our business. And a guy named Jake Wisely, who was the CEO of Bicycle, um, oversees the publishing side. Mm-hmm. We have a pretty rich and great executive team, you know, filling out the, the rest of the positions. Right, and uh, it was clear, I guess, just looking at it when uh, Wally joined, that this was not going to be simply a jazz label or a catalog label or whatever. You you guys are now going to be in the fight uh, to become what looks like it's the fifth largest uh, music company in the uh, in the world now. Yeah, I mean, we we were well beyond jazz even before Tom joined, but but yes, I mean, our our plans are are much broader than you know than being in the niches. That said, that's where we have you know become leaders. I mean, we still are a leader in jazz. I think we have probably the third largest market share in jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but you know we have also I think a larger rock business now um, than any other independent. Uh, certainly in the United States, that's true. Um, and that's happened, you know, partially by acquisition, but also because the labels that we bought continue to make great music, and, you know, and they, they uh, generate a large market share as a result of that. Yeah, and you embraced uh, streaming. Uh, Very much so. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you do that um, when you're talking about acquisitions, but you're also working the active rosters of each label? How do you balance growth in terms of trying to keep getting bigger? And, and I, I'm trying to phrase the question right, right, so that uh, you know you're going to get a certain amount uh, from just the, the business that you currently have. And then I guess you're looking for 
future opportunities. Um, do you guys, and you don't have to tell us this, but do you guys have like actual plans down? Like in 2019, we do this. In 2020, we do this in terms of acquisitions. Or are you guys always just looking for, let's just see what opportunities come up. We have a war chest set aside in case we want to go for it. Um, it's more, I mean, it's not, there is a strategy to what we're doing. It's not just seeing what's out there and looking at buying anything. Mm -hmm. uh, we have, we've been very, very busy in the last um, few years with acquisitions, and, but we have been evangelists about the value of music and, and long-lasting rights forever. I mean, we've, we've really, even in the valley of the, of the uh, music business over the last 15 years, we were still kind of pounding the table saying, look, there's tremendous value in in timeless uh, recordings and, and copyrights and song copyrights. And so, um, you know, it's, it's only in the last few years where we have some tailwind once again that things have really accelerated. So I think, you know, as we look at growth, we want to, to really look at areas where we think we can add value. Um, and everything we're doing is really about building value. Um, so... You know, we look at opportunities where we understand them really well. We have a passion for the music, um, and and we try to, if, if an acquisition comes along that kind of fits the profile, um, then we're going to look at that and go for it. At the same time, we want to deepen what we do already. So, you know, our frontline labels, the songwriters on our publishing side, um, we want to help uh, nurture them and, and support them and help them do what they do and hope that that, also leads to significant growth. So it's it's really it is a balancing act of you know trying to grow by acquisition, but also trying to grow organically and by helping creators do what they do, which is create. Mm -hmm. And a perfect example of uh, of that with the acquisitions being uh, valuable is now that uh, Ariana Grande's hit Seven Rings is actually, from what we read, 90% um, owned by you guys because it's a uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein right. work. Well, that, that sort of underscores the value of, you know, having great copyrights, right? Yeah. Um, you, you never quite know how you're going to use it, but also it's, it's part of what we do. I mean, one of the things I think for us that, um, sets us apart a little bit is that it, you know we love our new recording business we love our our songwriting business and um, and as I said we want to nurture that but we also really take the stewardship that comes along with catalog ownership very seriously you know we we know that people have been creating great music for for a very long time and um, part of our job is to really honor that and support it and find new ways now in this case you know, it was Ariana who, who came up with that idea. But nonetheless, you know, I think for us, it, it's about, um, you know, making sure that uh, all of these copyrights still are out there and, and at, on the top of people's minds. There is an accidental brilliance to Seven Rings as it pertains to you guys. We were talking about it in class, and eventually these songs from the Rodgers and Hammerstein, Rogers and Hammerstein catalog are going, are going to go public domain. I don't know when that is. Do you know when, it, when any of that starts? Uh, it's, a, it's a ways off. I it's don't still a ways. Yeah. Okay. Um,
but but probably sooner rather than like a brand new Ariana Grande song from a girl who's 25 years old. Um, but th where the brilliance is, is that that song, from what I understand, would be considered a derivative work of the Rodgers and Hammerstein, My Favorite Things. Mm -hmm. And thus it would be considered a brand new, brand new, 100% brand new song. So uh, it would fall under current copyright. So I'm not exactly sure when it would go PD, but it would go much, much, we, we, we will be gone by the time that song uh, goes PD. And it, uh, it appears to be just a tremendous, when you talk about value, um, that's the kind of song that's going to earn great revenue for you guys for many, many years down the road, just because you own that catalog. And somebody did, like you said, did something interesting and created something new out of it, out of which you're getting 90%, which is cool. That is correct. That Can we is the, the beauty of owning of owning copyrights like that? Yeah, and I guess people have said that um, somebody who we work with, Aaron Van Dyne, he's the business manager for Kiss and Three Doors Down, and Dave Matthews. And one thing he always says, even to this day, when when streaming is such a huge part of the business, and you're talking about for every stream just a percentage of a penny. He's, he, Aaron still says, you know, uh, when he sees these numbers coming in of what his artists are getting, it's still the publishing. If you can write a hit song or a song that has lasting value, there's still a, a long-term, almost annuity to that, to that publishing. And you guys have really hit the mother load with a lot of the stuff that you've purchased. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's differences on both sides of the business. I think, you know, certainly on the publishing side, that's true. You write a hit song and it gets covered and there's new versions and derivative works and all of that it is it is an annuity it just keeps going um you know the record side of things i think um it, it it that part of the business has changed quite a bit and it's looking a lot more like publishing these days too uh you know it's um it more when you think about it um such a high percentage of the business now is effectively licensed out to others right as opposed to us creating products and shipping them and taking inventory risk and all of the, you know, the, the way that the physical business works. So, and in many ways, you know, that's a tremendous business as well now. So I think, um, you know, it, there, there is a balance that's occurring between the two, which is also part of why when we looked at what we had, you know, with the publishing business and a record business, it made a lot more sense to um, to operate as one company in multiple areas as opposed to try to, as opposed to doing what the industry has done um, historically, which is to divisionalize and, you know, really have silos that don't work well together. Yeah, that's great. It's like you guys are a, a mutual fund, you know, if, if one thing. I used to work when you were at Alliance. I was a Polygram. And um, one thing that they were doing, they bought Island, they bought A&M, they bought Motown. They were buying some of these different labels, kind of like what you guys have done. And the the thinking was when Motown is cold, um, Island will be hot or Mercury will be hot when A&M goes cold. There will always be something that's going to be hot that's going to help carry us through the cold times mm -hmm. for the other silos, the other parts. Right. Yeah, there is. There, I guess if you think of investor theory there, there is a, a benefit to diversification. Um, you know, we, we, we've acknowledged that. I think for us, we look at having great copyrights across the board. And, you know, and really copyrights that are timeless and that do lend themselves to things like derivative works. You know, that's that's really the focus. And then we layer on top of that a business that's about creation. And if you again, kind of looking at it in traditional business terms, it's 
I guess you could you could argue that to an extent that's also R and D. You know, as you, as you mm-hmm. build your business. That <clears throat> do you um, do the labels have A and R people out scouting all the time or going through the internet or whatever? They uh, they do. Um, they have each. So we have the, the way we've organized now. We have um, five frontline labels. Um, and they all have their own A&R staff. They all have their own marketing staff. Um, so they basically um, go out, find artists, um, you know, nurture them, help them in, through the creative process. Once the record's ready to go, um, design the marketing strategy. Then we have a core central team, um, which really serves all the labels. So, for example, there's there's one. Uh, large radio team uh, in, you know, that, that focuses on, on all of the label's work. Um, so you know, it, we, we gain both the efficiencies of scale um, by having one system, but yet the diversity of genre and of creativity by having um, you know, multiple labels uh, and multiple A&R centers that are you know, somewhat organized by, by genre, um, but are also just a, a different creative center. Mm-hmm. And you're, um, I read someplace, I guess in Billboard, someone said from the company that um, you're not really interested in uh, top 40 competitive waters. Uh, the hits or pop hits aren't really one of your um, goals. No, it's not something that, that we, we focus on. We focus on career artists and artist development. And, um, you know, we've historically been very strong with, with artists who um, are established and who've been around a long time, and you know, we we get very excited when, like a few years ago, we you know we work, we've had the privilege of working with James Taylor for the last last decade. But you know, we unbelievably, to me, you know, we're we're um, part of delivering his first number one record ever. You know, hmm. so that's just it was a, it felt great to be able to be just a part of that, and you know, and we've had worked with Paul Simon and now Steve Perry and right. you know we had a great relationship with Paul McCartney and you know so though that was great that was one part of our business on the on the other side you know when we look at at the genres which we really know and we have a passion for they don't lend themselves to top 40 it's not to say that we wouldn't go there if we have something that really works um, but you know in in general we don't um, it's not uh, something that really would work for for much of what we do but you know in rock for example i think we have the largest market share or largest um, share of, of rock radio of anybody including the majors mm-hmm. um so you know and we're strong in AAA radio and, and alternative and so forth so um you know th- these are the areas where we focus and then when we need to supplement if we can go to top 40 um you know we'll do that but it's not something that's a primary focus we, we tend we, we tend to try to find areas where we feel we can be strong and we can be a leader. We think the majors do a phenomenally good job of top 40 radios. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not an area where we you know, get into that mix. Right. Well, everything else but top 40, you just, I mean, it just feels like a major label or a major entertainment company with uh, a little different strategy. Yeah, I, I think you could say that. And the strategy is that you're looking for then hit after hit after hit, 
and you're willing to even go to a Paul McCartney, well, that's a bad example, <laughs> but to go to a a rocker or something like a Greg Allman or something, which he still has a career, but it's certainly less than it was, uh, just that you see the longevity in the catalog that he may bring or not bring, but that the brand that he has uh, and created is something that has value. Yeah, I, that's that's a good way to put it, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, um, is Universal still the official distributor of Concord? Um, on the record side of our business, yes. So what, what yep. did, because you brought up earlier that there's less physical, and I was thinking in my head that I guess the distribution agreement you guys have is that they're doing radio for you or something, but then you just said you guys have a radio staff. So what, what are they doing? I'm curious. Um, so we've, we've had a, I think it's a 15-year relationship with Universal now. Um, you know, and that stems back to the old Concord Music Group days. I think I, I did the first deal with Universal in 2004, so right, right around our Ray Charles record. Um, and, you know, obviously distribution has changed a whole lot in that, in that time. Well, first of all, on the physical side of things, it's important to note that, you know, physical is far from dead. Um, it's still 25% of the world market, and Universal distributes us globally. Mm. In certain markets, it's even more important than that when you think about, you know, Japan is still 70% physical, Germany is around 35, 36%, something like that. France is at 30%. You know, the UK is probably at the the average of 23, 24, something like that. So so it's, it's really important for that reason. Secondly, there's a component of physical, which is, I think, um, never going to go away and is going to, it will continue to play a very important role, and that's in high, what I'll call high-end physical. And I guess the best uh, example of that is vinyl and the growth in vinyl. It's not a fad. I think for, what I see is that when a fan really identifies with an artist, it's, it's not that satisfying to just be able to access that music via a streaming service. You want some kind of physical representation of, um, of the interest that you have in that artist and how you identify with with them so having you know vinyl or a high-end set or something that you can put on a shelf or a wall or whatever is is important and then of course to the audiophile it's important as well so i think that's going to endure and it will always be distributors necessary to to get that out there on the on the digital side of things you know the keys there for for digital distribution are really um data management so you know getting um all of the the uh, music files out there to the world and managed properly, uh, disseminating them to all the DSPs and so forth. And then probably even more important than that is once you get it all out there and in the right place, which, you know, that there's a fairly um, established system to do that, it's how do you manage the data coming back at you, um, both from just the technical, we need to mine the business and you know, handle royalty distribution and so forth effectively. But also then I think the trick to it all is trying to interpret the data and understand it better and understand how you can optimize um, the value of what you're doing by looking at the information that's coming back at you, you know, from, from all the digital services. So, um, you know, each distributor out there has their own tools to do this. And we have our tools, which we've invested into, to try and interpret the data the best way possible. But that's a core element of, um, 
digital distribution. And then I'd say one other layer on top of that, which is important, is that, you know, the, the distributor is at the front line of making the deals with all the different services. And, of course, that includes the, the primary suspects, the Spotify's and Amazon and Apple and so forth, but, you know, even opening up new markets like, you know, Facebook um, and the whole, the whole social media side of things. I mean, distributors are out there looking to do that, and I think when you're dealing with the likes of a company like Facebook or any one of that size, it takes aggregators to be able to make that work. So it's the majors, it's Merlin, the organization that has aggregated the indie community. Um, they, they play a real important role in all of this. So, do you, so in that case, you would be using Universal, but not not Merlin, correct? Even though you're technically an indie. Um, well, you know, we we have a, a pretty extensive business now, so we use both in hmm. different ways. So, Universal is is our exclusive distributor. Um, you know, we've also acquired some assets that um, ultimately they were bought from Warner, but Warner <laughs> bought a piece of of EMI Parlophone. And when, which, you know, Universal had bought, um, and Universal was restricted from uh, distributing those assets for a period of time in order to get regulatory approval in Europe. And so, you know, we, we literally could not distribute those assets through Universal, so they go through Merlin. Um, so it's a little complicated. There's other times when you buy uh, companies, you know, which we've done a lot of in the last few years, and they have an existing distribution deal. Um, you, you have to maintain that, and you know at least until the deal expires. So, um, so we kind of have experience all over the place. You know, we we know we have different relationships with different distributors, and, and um, you know different arrangements. Mm -hmm. that, that's interesting, though. The whole uh, yeah, because when Universal bought EMI, they were told you had to sell off, like you said, Parlophone, I forget, and some other things. And it's interesting. So you bought something. You guys bought something from Universal in that. No, no. The, so the the chain was Universal bought Parlophone, mm -hmm. um, needed to. I'm sorry. They they bought um, EMI and needed to divest mm -hmm. piece of EMI in order to get regulatory approval. And so they sold off Parlophone to Warner, and Warner, fearing the same issues, um, agreed to sell a piece of um, that of their assets to independent labels. Um, and so there was a whole process where independent labels bought uh, assets from from Warner, um, you know, through through that that whole mechanism. And so we did as well. And so we bought a bunch of assets from from Warner at the time. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's that's interesting stuff. That's did you learn that stuff in uh, fifth grade, like English class? <laughs> 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 it's uh, it's now you guys did something really cool. Um, Yesterday, it looks like, because uh, again, we were talking about Rogers and Hammerstein. Am I saying, how did you say Hammerstein, Hammerstein or Hammerstein? Stein. Hammerstein, it is Hammerstein. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you, you guys, uh, we were talking about value and, and owning all these different things and utilizing them and trying to exploit them to the best possibilities. And then Skydance Television partnered with the Rogers and Hammerstein organization. And you guys, just yesterday, this came out to produce an original series based upon. The hit Oklahoma, and this is a, a what fiftieth anniversary of Oklahoma year or something. Too? Well, it's on Broadway now. Okay, that yeah, too? and it just opened on Broadway. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, did you have anything to do with that? Um, did well. Our, we have a team of people who mm -hmm. 
you know, absolutely opened the door to that. And, um, you know, one of the things, like, when you're in, I mean, this applies across the board, but certainly in the theatrical side of things, you have these amazing plays that were were um, developed by Rodgers and Hammerstein. And, um, you know, they, you can do them traditionally, but you can also update them and reimagine them and use them for derivative works. And so here's, this is essentially the concept with this, this uh, television show for Oklahoma, which is to reimagine this and to take these characters and bring them to life in, in today's setting and in different ways and to use both the Rodgers and Hammerstein music, but also to create a platform for new music, a music that's consistent. And, you know, when you think about how Americana, the Americana genre, which is hard to define, but, um, but it's certainly growing. And, um, you know, I think when you, when you think about how that might be integrated into a television show like Oklahoma, it's very exciting. So, and, it, and it kind of pulls together all the parts of our business. Um, where hopefully we can be a real contributor, not just with the Rodgers and Hammerstein compositions and and the reimagination of those, but to even bring other artists to bear or other songwriters to bear to be a part of this and to create new copyrights um, that are consistent with the theme of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, music inspired by, mm-hmm. and then wow, well, exactly. and that can lead into new. Well, that's. Yeah, I love you. <laughs> this is great. I mean, it is. I like the the word brilliant describing the company because there's some really great stuff that you guys. Do you have distribution for this yet? No, I mean it's all it's all in in the works. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, working with Skydance, who um, they're just tremendous. I mean, they 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 do some great work. So we're real excited to to be in business with them. And um, you know, all of this is uh, is kind of new, and we're seeing where where it all goes. But it's um, it's very exciting, and I I think. We, we hope that, you know, we've injected a little bit of, of, uh, of reinvigorated thinking into, you know, some of these uh, rights that we acquire. And so we, we love the idea of repurposing things, of um, creating synergies in different parts of our business. Um, you know, all of this is sort of at the core of our strategy is, you know, we, we, we believe we're, we're, this is, these are not separate businesses. We're in one integrated business and we want to see what we can do to make the most of what we have are you the kind of executive who has we'll call it open door policy or open email policy let's say i'm i'm a 25 24 year old person who um just started working with the company your company um any division and i had this idea you know some cool idea that that does exactly what you just talked about where you can integrate different parts of the company come up with something that reimagines uh and and could become a revenue source um are you open to those employees shooting an email over and saying hey mr barros i have this idea what do you think or are, are you are you kind of no you have to go um layers of management first not uh, very much so the op- open mm-hmm. policy i mean great ideas come from all kinds of places and, and um we'd love to hear them and we certainly love to you know, to see our our team really engaged, you know, and to be thinking of these things. Um, so, so absolutely, we we love having um, that type of, uh, of of activity. You know, mm-hmm. how, how many total? How many? What is the total number of employees for all of the Concord companies? Do you know? It's uh, just under five hundred right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. We do have a tweet. Uh, a student sent in a question via tweet, and Ashley, our engineer, 
and um, awesome person is going to read this to you. <laughs> All right. This is a question from Leo, and he's asking, according to the website HypeBot.com, despite streaming's growth, the music industry remains half the size it was in 1999. What is your opinion on this, and what do you think is the main challenge the music industry is facing today? Um, that is that is a very great question from Leo, and you're right. We are half the size we were back then. I think you know we we were very excited that uh, I I work I'm on the board of um, of the RIAA and the IFPI, and so I do a lot of work with. Um, with the industry trade bodies and the measurement of what's happening in the market. And, you know, we just had a press conference in, uh, a couple weeks ago when, uh, with the IFBI where we announced um, the numbers for 2018. And right. it's great news. We were up, you know, just under 10% for the year. It's probably the, it's not, it's the, the most significant growth since IFBI started measuring it. So. That's very exciting, but the reality is, I, th I think we're back to like 2007 levels. <laughs> so, you know, we have a long way to go to kind of get the industry back to where it was. Um, but we've now had four years of substantial growth, and I hope that that's going to continue for you know the next decade or more. And clearly, streaming is is driving that and is changing the industry. But, um, you know, so I, I think there's, there's good news ahead for the music business. I think it, there's still some challenges um, that we see uh, within all of this. I think, you know, there are certain categories within music that are going to be challenged. Uh, genres, the less commercial genres are having a hard time uh, making the leap. A genre like jazz, for example, yeah. classical, you know, very hard because y you have the services out there that are kind of focused on bringing in subscribers and they're looking at the masses right now and they're not really catering to these smaller genres and I think that has to, it will change at some point but um, that's that's a challenge I think that clearly um, you know where you have um, artists established artists who've been around a long time that kind of relied on their fan base buying albums um, you know and not they were never in a business where they needed to have you know, their audience buy a new record and listen to it over and over and over again in order to, um, uh, you know, to generate income. But that's the world of streaming now. And so I think a part of that is, um, you know, it, it raises the bar for many of these artists and it, it presents new challenges for them. So I think the way music gets out there is going to be a challenge, but there's no doubt that more will be heard. What the industry faces as a challenge, I think a lot of that is just you know, fair value for music. And that's been a lot of what we've argued for through RIAA, through IFPI, you know, making sure that um, that as our, is that the services that, that support music um, build their business and build tremendous uh, equity value in their business and use music, that there's a fair distribution back to the rights holders and the creators. And so I think that, presents one of the greatest challenges, and I think we've, we've, we're doing pretty well in moving it in the right direction now, um, but there's still, uh, you know, a long way to go. Mm -hmm. um, um, another tweet for you. Mm -hmm. This one is from Kaylee, and what's the biggest mistake you've ever made in the music biz? How did you work it out? Hmm. Wow. That's a, 
that's a that's a good question. I'm not sure I have an, uh, an immediate answer. I, you know, I guess um, mistakes. <laughs> um, <laughs> we all. I mean, I think the the key is you got to look at them as opportunities to to learn. Um, I, I honestly don't have one that comes to the top of my mind of saying, you know, wow, this was just an enormous mistake. I, I guess, you know, there probably a mistake that I've made too many times and I, and I wish to learn from is, um, is hanging on too long to, to a bad situation. If something's not working, you, you know, sometimes the best thing is just to move on. And, um, but, you know, you, you often um, stay on too long. You know whether it's a, a relationship with uh, someone on the on the team, it's a relationship with an artist that you really like, and you realize that it's not working anymore. Um, and it could probably both be better served if 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 you parted ways. Things things along those lines, um, because you want to try and turn it around and make it work. When really the best thing to do is to is to move on. I think those those are kind mm-hmm. of the mistakes that that I I try to learn from. Mm-hmm. We have a big uh, jazz program here in at the university, uh, one of the strongest in the uh, metropolitan area, if not the country. And I'm sure there are some students that are um, listening. And what would it take for Concord to sign an unknown jazz musician? I mean, there, was, there wouldn't be the data social media, the things that you look for on the um, rock side, and so on. What, what would, um, I guess, entice you to take a chance? Um, you know, we, we have a lot of, of new young jazz musicians that we've worked with over the years and that are on our Concord, that, that label will be Concord Records, which still uses the Concord Jazz imprint as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, you know, I think it's it's a similar thing that we look for in any artist, which is connectivity to an audience. I mean, the main thing with with um, I think any artist is how do they move an audience? Are they connecting? Are they creating emotion? And are and, and is that going to last and grow? And so, you know, for example, with with jazz, I see so often there are amazing technicians that can you know yeah. really play. But for whatever reason, they're they're just not connecting, mm-hmm. and so it's that I mean, call it the X factor, call it whatever you want. It's that ability to really, really touch someone, and 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 create a lasting relationship that way. Mm-hmm. So I think jazz. You know, so often we've seen where jazz musicians play for the other people they're playing with, right? Yeah. <laughs> Communicating on stage. And they're talking to each other, and right. they're really having a great time. And they forget that somebody just paid some money to come into that club and see them, and that it, those are the people you're supposed to be talking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's the jazz musician who can do that, who knows how to talk to those people, and they're hearing it and they're digging it. That's that's the one that gets our attention. Yeah, that they're in entertainers as well as players. Yeah, exactly, and that, and and that. I mean, you know, Miles knew that better than anybody. Even when he turned his back on the. I know, and they try to replicate him before turning his back. Mm-hmm. Well, if Miles right. could do it, then I can do it. Right, <laughs> and so Miles is already a legend. Yeah, and, and by uh, so I'll tell you a story from when I first got the Concord. One of the first artists I signed was Maynard Ferguson. Ah, yes, 
and I, I loved Maynard. We, we did three records with him. Um, I would defy anyone to go to a Maynard Ferguson concert and not oh, yeah. be happy. <laughs> yeah. You know, the guy was, was, was just full of joy. Well, one of the, one, for me, one of the great joys was going out to dinner with, with Maynard and hanging with him, and he would tell me stories about him and Miles. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of it was Miles picking Maynard's brain, well, for two things. One was, how do you hit those high notes? Right. <laughs> and, and the second one was really audience engagement. Mm -hmm. he, he got it. He understood that you know, what you could be doing musically could be just on another plane, which, of course, it was with Miles. But yeah. at the same time, if, if, you know, if you weren't communicating that to the audience, it didn't matter. Yeah. So that's the message that I, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat removed from the actual artist side of things these days right. um, in what I do. But, you know, I, I had the joy of spending a lot of time with artists and working with them. And that was always the message I tried to communicate mm -hmm. to any artist, but in particular to a jazz artist. Just remember what you're trying to do. All right. Right. So, so with the jazz artists, let's say you do sign some new artists, are you signing 360 deals with them? Is it uh, case by case, depending upon the artist? Yeah, it, it, it is case by case. And, um, you know, we, it, 360 deals, I know, especially when the industry was really at sort of its lowest point, you mm -hmm. know, the argument was that record companies being the investment engine in artists, you know, they were, it used to be where records were enough to sort of create the right return on investment. Um, and then that changed. And so they felt, well, if we're creating a career, we should participate in all these other, other uh, channels. And, um, you know, we, we never really subscribed to that notion. Mm. But we always felt if we were investing in a particular part of a career we could help, then, you know, we, we, there should be a fair participation. But it was always balanced, and I think every situation is different. We look at it similarly today that every situation is different. And if there's anything I've seen in the change in the business is there are no formulas anymore in any part of this business. Mm -hmm. the, the deals that are being cut all the way to the way you market a record, it just seems like everyone has its own unique yep. combination of factors. And, and then you guys signed... Uh, road bands, Tedeschi trucks, you know, which which makes uh, and, and you can completely tell me I'm wrong. The the bulk of their revenue from touring, um, are, but you sign them to a deal. So is it um, why why do you, why do that? Why sign Melissa Etheridge or Santana? Because is that because you're still getting enough revenue from physical product and stop looking at the streams and there's still enough physical out there that it's worth it. Uh, yes. Okay. And they're making great music. They're they're doing you know they're they're still out there. I think really connecting with their fan base. Um, physical still works. Um, you know, digital has been dropping even faster than physical, but there's still a, a digital download market. Streaming is coming on, and then you find new ways. I mean, we do a lot of um, direct to consumer business with you know collectible type things, with merchandise, with really trying to help that artist um, serve their fans. And so we do all of that, but at the same, and it all still adds up to a pretty good business. And I think that's part of part of who we are is, to, you know, these artists are still very relevant, um, and they are they are in most cases making music that is just 
very compelling. And so, you know, we feel they deserve to be served and nurtured, um, you know, uh, as much as any new artist and, and much as bringing new music from someone, you know, people don't know yet. You're very, as a company, you're very artist-centric. It's not just about numbers. There's a, a quality there that if, if you if you hear a Santana song and you're like, this has to be out there, and we're the ones to do it. I don't care if it doesn't make any money. It has to be out there because it's that good a song. That's the kind of company you are. Yeah, I mean, you know, we. I, I'll tell you, you know, what what drives us. So, what we're all about is really creating value. And, and I say, and value is, is for all of our stakeholders. So um, I don't mean shareholders and, and investors. They're, they're one of the stakeholders. Um, our, our stakeholders are really our investors, our creators, so that, you know, because we're a multifaceted company now, it's, it's artists, it's songwriters in the classical world, composers, playwrights. Um, so that those I would, I would put all of those under the, label of creators um, you know our customers we have to create value for for all of our customers and make sure they have a, a compelling offering uh, our employees and and the community at large and so whether it's the music community or the broader community and so we sort of define success by are we creating that value and, and so and value is not just financial value clearly that's a component of it and you have to be aware of that and you're trying to build a successful business because you have to take care of your investors and people that invest in music deserve a return so we want to be respectful of that and deliver the right return and we want our employees to thrive and to have advancement and to create more jobs and so that takes financial energy too but when it comes to artists certainly they want optimization of their rights they want to make as much money as they can from their rights but they also want creative support they want advocacy and they want fair treatment and they want to try to connect with as many fans as possible and so if we think we can find that sweet spot between you know we love an artist we really love the music we think we know what to do with it we're really we can be great at, at bringing that music out to the market and we can make a financial return on this then that's the sweet spot of what we want to do and so that's how we we focus on acquisitions or how we focus on artist signings or songwriters. It's really finding, if you drew the Venn diagram and said, do we love it? Are we good at it? And can we, and can we be successful financially at that? In the, in the intersection of those three circles is sort of what we focus on and what we try to do. Wow. Yeah. Well, you've tried to give us a good interview and you've succeeded today. So we want to thank you. Very much. <laughs> this has been really great, Glenn. Thank you so much. Thanks. I, I'm, yeah. I appreciate you asking me on to the, to the show. No, it's been cool. And we want to thank Nick Boney, who works with you, because Nick also gave us Rounder President John Strom a couple weeks ago. So I heard. Right. Yeah. Nick, no, Nick is great. He's, he's, um, he's, he's that, that um, uh, young guy you talked about with the, with the great ideas. He's, he's one of them. Well, we connected mm -hmm. with him because I wrote something about you guys on our blog a couple months ago and I used the wrong logo and Nick found it and he said can you use the proper logo and he sent it to me and I just changed the logo and I said hey while we're at it can we interview some of your people and uh, it turned into this so uh, thank Nick again it's, it's really great so he's a good guy and you are and John is and we just want to hold you <laughs> well you know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a product of the music business uh, uh, academic world I came out of a music business program and so I have a great affinity for them and I love um, what you're doing, and I'm also from New Jersey, so 
So where? Where? That I, I grew up in Linden. Ah. Wow. And what? Uh, what program did you graduate from? I, I went. I went to NYU. Ah. That back then there weren't that many programs. Now, now right. there's lots. But right. you guys have one of the best, and I'm I'm really impressed with what you do. So. Well, thank you. All right. Very much. All right. Well. John, uh, Glenn, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And have thank a, you. Have a great night. And when the podcast is out, we'll send it to you. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye now. Well, that was good. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a big, big company. Yeah. Very, very, very um, comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And they're a value company, but they're also, you know, they're finding those niches. Yeah. And making a lot of money with it. Doing great with them, yeah. yeah. So uh, Ashley has found a niche by being our engineer, so that's turned her into a radio star, and uh, she'll be uh, employed forever. <laughs> and so will we because we have tenure. So with that in mind, you'll be listening to Music Biz 101 and more. forgot the name of our show <laughs> on Brave New Radio. We want to thank you. We want to thank Dr. Stavon Marconi. Thank you well, so thank much. Thank you very much. Thank and also so my much. co-host, Professor... David Kirk Phillips. Who is I, who is me, and that is I. And we want to thank you all for listening, and thank you for your tweets. We couldn't get to all of them, but that's okay. So for McCartney, <laughs> it's like Marconi and McCartney combined. Jeez. For Marconi, for Veltner, for Philp, we want to thank you. At the end of every show, we don't say hello. That's stupid. At the end of every show, we say, Adios! Yeah.